And now, Virgin Most Powerful Radio is pleased to present Hands-On Apologetics with renowned Catholic author and apologist, Gary Machuda. Welcome, everybody, to Hands-On Apologetics. You have entered into Virtual Most Powerful's Apologetics Dojo. It's great to be with you today, uh, rocking and rolling through the week. Got a great show in store for us today. We're going to have the blue-collar apologist himself, John Martinoni. And uh, we're going to be talking about his brand-new book, A Blue-Collar Answer to Protestantism, Catholic Questions Protestants Can't Answer. And as you know, when it comes to John Martinoni, uh, man, uh, he is, uh, oh, what do I want to say? He is like the uh, black belt holder when it comes to just one-on-one dialogues and, and even debates, too. I think he's really under underrated as far as a debater. Um, he always has these really practical, pithy Easy to understand and and just great advice, apologetic hacks on sharing the faith. So he's going to be coming on the show on the other side of the break. We're going to chat about his brand new book and go into some material on the book, too. Um, all of that is going to be a ton of fun. On this side of the break, we're going to do what we always do. We're going to sharpen our critical thinking skills with the Finding the Fallacy segment. Today's Finding the Fallacy is the informal fallacy of... The appeal to emotion, the appeal to emotion, man, this is one of those fallacies that is used all over the place. We're swimming in this appeal to emotion. We'll find out what that is and how to avoid it. Also, we're going to meet an early church father. Today's early church father is not exactly a household name, to be sure. In fact, I would venture to say probably unless you've heard it before on this program you probably never heard of this early church father it is julian of eclanium julian of eclanium so hey we got tons of fun in store for us today but before we do any of that i want to welcome all of you to the show so welcome aboard all of you listening on radio and of course lest i forget you live stream how you doing and all you podcast peeps out there, it's great to have you all on board, both listening and watching. Uh, as you know, this show, although it's a radio show, is also live stream through various social media outlets. And um, yeah, so you can access it. And I think this is really powerful. I point this out every show. Why? Well, because um, it's a great tool for you to use for sharing, defending the faith with others. In other words, uh, sometimes you, you don't have time or maybe you don't really understand a particular area very well. You can share a show and ask ask them to listen to a show, tell, them, tell you what you think. Um, and you can have great apologists like John Martinoni uh, as a resource for you. Or we do training. You know, you can listen to it over and over again right there in archive form on virtualmostpowerfulradio.org. Really, really powerful uh, tool that you can use. I, if you're like me, oftentimes I need to hear things more than once. I'm one of those guys that probably learns more listening than than reading, you know, through eyesight. 
and uh, although I'm pretty good with remembering things in books, but when it comes to audio, um, sometimes I like to listen to things more than once. And if you're like me, then virtualmostpowerfulradio.org is the place to go. Not only will you keep abreast of all the great things that Virtual Most Powerful is producing, but you also can access all the shows right there, including this one, and listen to your heart's content. So if you're a John Martinoni fan like I am, uh, you get to listen to this show. You, you can download it and share it with your friends and do all sorts of great stuff. All right. And also want to give the official Dojo Mailbox. I do this every show, as you know, and that is questions at handsonapologetics.com. Again, questions at handsonapologetics.com. It comes directly to me, the sensei, and I do answer your emails. And by the way, I do appreciate your emails very much. Uh, it's great to hear from you. And uh, yeah, so that's all the resources that, that you could use. And I think we're all set to start going into our segment. So let's go to the finding the fallacy for today. Like I said, the appeal to emotion. Appeal to emotion, also known for your Latinist out there, is the argumentum ad passionis. It is an informal fallacy characterized by the manipulation of a recipient's emotions in order to win an argument, especially in the absence of factual evidence. In other words, it tugs at your heartstrings and it gets you to uh, become, uh, what do I say? It gets you to embrace whatever position a particular person has precisely because it kind of rings with uh, your emotions. And, and especially today, it seems like people use as their barometers as to whether something is true or not, how they feel, right? Uh, and how they feel about certain things. They don't discuss whether something is true or not. And so this fallacy, like I said, is rife out there in all areas of life, not just apologetics, but politics and everything else you can think of. So uh, appeal to emotion. How do you... Um, how do you dis, um, uh, disengage from it? How do you diffuse it? Well, I think the best thing is just to point out when it's being used, right? And to focus on the truth or falsity of a particular proposition rather than go into appeals to emotion, right? Whether good emotions or bad emotions, usually uh, pathos is a very powerful one. Uh, get people to feel sorry about something. And realize that, you know, although uh, emotions are a very important component in our lives as human beings, nevertheless, you know, it's not how we use to judge whether something is true or false and whether something is right or wrong. And uh, so, you know, you always have to keep your focus, keep your focus on true, false, right and wrong. And whenever somebody brings up an appeal to emotion, realize that that's a very weak position to argue from. If all you have to bring is just sob stories or, you know, intimidation or fear or something like that, and not any kind of evidence or arguments, well, then you're in a very sorry shape. And so, you know, I, I guess if someone uses the appeal to emotion, you should respond with the appeal to pity for them because it's pitiable that they would use such an argument. And that is our finding the fallacy for today, the appeal to emotion. 
All right, let's move on to meet our early church father for today, who is, like I said, pretty obscure early church father. Um, he's called Julian the of Eclanium. Julian of Eclanium. And you might notice that when it comes to early church fathers, when you start getting into the 5th, 6th, 7th centuries, uh, they seem to become more and more obscure. That's because in the 4th century and earlier, you're really looking at the golden age of patristic writers like Augustine, Jerome. You know, all the big names are in that period. But once you get past, the, let's say, the 4th century onwards, um, they seem to be more and more obscure. There, there are a couple of really great lights, like St. John Damascene, for example, uh, that everybody would recognize, at least uh, within Catholicism. I think you'd at least have heard the name, but not Julian of Clanum. So Julian of Clanum, when Pope Zosimus promulgated his decision against Pelagianism in 418, a letter went out to all the bishops of the world requiring their assent in the matter. Julian, who was Bishop of Eclanium, headed a group of 18 bishops who refused. So he's part of a dissenting party. And from that time, he assumed the leadership of the Pelagian party. He was expelled from his see by Pope Zosimus and was exiled by civil authority with no permanent domicile. We find him about the year 420, enjoying the hospitality of Theodore Mopsuestia. And in the late 420s, he tarried a long time with Nestorius in Constantinople. Uh, Pelagianism is a rather well-developed system, and it owes its synthesis, boy, say it, Gary, synthesis largely to Julian, as with Pelagius and Celestius. However, his rather extensive writings are, for the most part, extant only in fragmentary conditions. So, uh, not surprised. So, you know, he is part of the group of the Pelagian uh, heresy. So, technically, you know, he really isn't an early church father if he's a heretic. Um, <laughs> but, you know, we use Jurgen's Faith Early Fathers for this segment, and he includes heretics as well. And the reason for that is even though they are heretical and they don't have they don't enjoy the same authority in and of themselves because they're not completely orthodox, nevertheless, they do witness in certain respects to the common beliefs of the day. For example, although uh, Julian may have been, and this is just hypothetical, he may have been a heretic in regards to Pelagianism, he may still have orthodox opinions about, oh, let's say the Blessed Virgin Mary or the sacraments or something like that, right? So they're, they're still worth reading and uh, considering. They're also helpful in that even when they're heretical, it's good to understand their understanding or misunderstanding of a particular doctrine so that when you read other early church fathers that refute them, you'll understand where he goes awry. And like Jurgen says, we only have fragments left from Julian. And uh, nevertheless, you know, he is part of this segment that we call Meet the Early Church Fathers. So, uh, yeah, Julian and Clanny learn something new every day. Coming up next on the other side of the break, where we have John Martinoni, Luke apologies for telling about his brand new book. Now, back to Hands-On Apologetics with Gary Machuda. 
Here's Gary. And welcome back, everybody. Hands-on apologetics. And when you're talking with our separated brethren who are Protestant, you want to be able to ask great questions and also give great answers. And, uh, you know, the most important questions are the ones that really make them stop and think and reconsider their position. And there's a great resource that's out there who's written by our guest, John Martinoni. It's called Blue Collar Answer to Protestantism, Catholic Questions Protestants Can't Answer. And you're familiar with John's work. Uh, he works for the Bible Christian Society. You can check out his stuff on uh, Bible Christian Society. I believe it's .com. Also, he's the author of a couple of books and also his work with EWTN Open Line. And John Martinoni, welcome back to Hands-On Apologetics. Gary, good to be on with you as always, sir. Yeah, it, uh, it's. It, I love it when you're in the dojo because, like, the energy level just gets kicked up a couple <laughs> of notches. <laughs> well, well uh, if you don't mind, I wanted to say something regarding your uh, uh, fallacy of the day that I was listening to. Yes. About uh, appeal to emotion. Mm-hmm. I, I, I did a debate in Atlanta for the uh, Archdiocese of Atlanta uh, diaconate formation class, and they had invited in a the the pastor of evangelization for the Church of the Twelve Apostles in Atlanta, which is a mega church. Well, okay. this this pastor is a former Catholic from Birmingham, and oh, wow. he got up, and we were debate, debating sola fide, salvation by faith alone. He gets up, he says, you know, I think it's very important that we stick to the Bible. You know, we go by the Bible and the Bible alone. I really feel it's important in this debate that we just stick to the Bible. And then he went on, gave some passages and everything uh, in support of his position for sola fide. I get up, and using just the Bible, I absolutely destroyed his position. Okay? (laughs) I mean, just took it apart and then asked him some questions from the Bible about sola fide, you know, and that... People were telling me later, because he was sitting behind me, so I couldn't see him while I was talking, that his face just, that when I started talking, he had a big smile on his face, and when I ended his talk, talking, his face was red, he was frowning, and his foot was bouncing up and down on the floor. Um, so he gets up, and after saying, you, we need to stick with the Bible, he gets up, and his next part was, well, you know, I've talked to lots of Catholics who feel much better now that they've come into the church and left the Catholic church, because now they know they're saved. You know, he just started appealing to, yeah. to personal emotions, to, to personal anecdotes, and, and left the Bible pretty darn quickly once he was shown <laughs> the Bible did not support his position. Yeah. No, that's a great example, appeal to emotion. Uh, and and that's also a great example of how, you know, appeal to emotions, almost like the 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 uh, tactic of last resort, right? I mean, because you basically show you don't have any more evidence or arguments. Right. The best you can do is just try to pull on people's heartstrings or, yep. you know. And so I just replied to him. I said, look, for every... <laughs> person that you have in your church that has left the Catholic faith, I can give you a hundred in my church that has, or, or more that has left the fa- your faith for the Catholic church. So why don't we get back to scripture? You know, and... <laughs> that's great. That's awesome. So, uh, yeah, uh, well, that's awesome. I'm, I'm glad you shared that with us because, uh, it, like I said, it's all over the place. Uh, it's one of yeah. those fallacies that you know, you got to be equipped to, to deal with, and, and you, 
you refocused it and put it back on track. Um, so let's talk about your brand new book, The Blue Collar yeah. uh, Answer to Protestantism. How did this come about? Well, it's basically just um, the, the book was more or less an et- exercise in editing rather than an exercise in writing because with my um, <coughs> excuse me with my uh, e-newsletter apologetics for the masses that I've been putting out for the last about 20 years or so I've got I'm up to uh, like uh, issue number 460 or 70 something like that so all, almost all of this stuff had been in previous emails and I just gathered what I had put out there over the years on on this particular topic or under this particular um, from this particular perspective on Protestantism, and I just put it all in this book. I had to do some editing, some updating, and such. But uh, basically, it's what I've been teaching people, writing about, speaking about for the last 20 years or so. And so it just, you know, it was already out there. I just gathered it all together in one place and put it into a book. Man, that's great because uh, your your work, you've done so much. I mean, your newsletter, um, boy, uh, that in itself, I mean, over the years, what a great library of apologetics. So to boil that down and put it into a concise form where it's just all bound together, uh, that's a great tool for people to use. Well, I'm certainly hoping so, and the early response has been very positive, and uh, uh, people wanting, because basically, you know, as you said, the the title of the book is A Blue-Collar Answer to Protestantism. The subtitle is Catholic Questions Protestants Can't Answer, but it's it's basically divided into two sections. The first section is Problems with Protestantism, and I, I look at Protestantism through a, a macro lens, you know, like are looking at it as a whole, in essence. And then the second half is questions Protestants can't answer, where I'm looking at particular uh, doctrines and dogmas of Protestantism. So looking at it through a, a micro lens um, and just using scripture or common sense as a, as a starting point and just asking questions about Sola fide, sola scriptura, once saved, always saved, and showing that uh, you know I've got thirty different questions, and it's like I don't know seven or eight of them on sola fide, seven or eight on sola scriptura, and four or five on on once saved, always saved, and a few others. But what it's doing is it's coming at those particular doctrines and teachings of Protestantism from different perspectives with each question. So I'm showing. That, well, it's not just, well, you take one verse and you do this with it and you can say sola fide is wrong from Scripture. No, no, no. It's a plethora of verses throughout Scripture. It, it's the entire Scripture that screams no to sola fide. And, and then logic, as well as Scripture, screams no to, to sola scriptura and, and the other Protestant doctrines. So... Uh, I've got 30 questions in the section on uh, questions Protestants can't answer, and I've been sharing them in talks I've been giving the last couple of weeks since the book came out, and people are just like, give us more, give us more. So it's been, it's been an awesome response that I've been getting. I'm, I'm truly blessed by it. 
Yeah, that's awesome. And and you should, I mean, it's it's practically a manual of apologetics. I mean, if anyone's starting off, uh, or even if you're a seasoned apologist, I think you'd get a lot out of it. Uh, well, you mentioned, you know, the questions. Do you want to uh, talk about a couple of questions? And sure, with us? sure. Yeah. Um, let me just, let me get to my table of contents here. Okay, the question number one is, is a dead body really a body and, and i've had people look at that and go what the heck are you talking about how is that a question protestants can't answer well here's the thing as you've probably heard i'm, I'm sure many times gary uh when you're talking to people about salvation by faith alone and you t- start talking about well you know these people they they accept jesus into their heart as their personal lord and savior and they go off, and maybe they behave okay for a while, but then they start sinning. Maybe they commit adultery, or, or, or maybe they steal from their, from, uh, their workplace, or, or do what, commit murder, whatever. You know? And then you ask the person, the sola fide believers, are they still saved? Even though they've committed murder, they've committed adultery, they've lied, they cheated, they stole. You know, are they still saved? And the answer will be, well... You know, they weren't really saved in the first place. It's like, okay, okay, so, well, what about these people who, you know, they're saved, but then they just kind of sit on the couch like spiritual couch potatoes, and they don't really do any good works, like feeding the hungry, clothing the naked, you know, and, and visiting the sick and the imprisoned, like, like Jesus says we need to do in Matthew 25. What about those people who they believe but they don't have any works. And they say, well, faith without works really isn't faith. And I'm like, okay, but hang on a second here. Faith without works really isn't faith. So what I do, that's why I ask, well, so is a dead body really a body? And people, why are you asking that question? Because in James 2.26, it says, for as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so faith apart from works is dead. Well, so what, what, what's going on here in James? This is right after James has said, you see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. Then he says, for as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so faith apart from works is dead. So James is making an analogy. The body is faith, works are the spirit. That's the analogy he makes. So, as the body apart from the spirit is dead, faith apart from works is dead. So I asked people, I said, is a body, a dead body, really a body? You know, all the bodies down at the morgue, are they real bodies? And people say yes. I say, okay, well then if they're real bodies without the spirit, then faith without works is really faith. It's just dead faith. And so people, they can't argue then that, well, faith without works really isn't faith. Well, no, no. This analogy says it is. And in the analogy, what we're seeing is that in order to have physical life, you need the body and the spirit. So in order to have spiritual life, you need both faith and works. And I've never really gotten any kind of 
coherent, scripturally consistent or logically consistent response to that question. Yeah. Yeah, that's really good. because uh, when uh, non-Catholics, they, they want to talk about faith, you know, they'll say, well, if you have true saving faith, then you'll do good works necessarily, right? right? And if you don't, then you, didn't, you never were saved to begin with, so you never really had true saving faith. So yeah. I, I love that analogy from James because, yeah, I mean, ultimately it, it shows that as far as James is concerned, faith is faith. It's just one faith is... Uh, informed by good works and one isn't. Yeah, I mean, if, if the body is likened to faith and the spirit is likened to works and the body without the spirit is dead, but it's, it's a real body, so faith without works is dead. But it's real faith, mm-hmm. you know? So you can't say, no, he didn't really have faith. He said, no, no, he has faith, but it's dead. And dead faith does you no good. Yeah. Yeah. Excellent. Uh, We're chatting with John Martinoni. We're talking about his uh, brand new book, A Blue Collar Answer to Protestantism. More to come right after this. Stay tuned, folks. This is Jesse Romero. You're listening to Hands-On Apologetics with Gary Machuda on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. And welcome back, everybody. Hands-on apologetics. We're chatting with the blue-collar apologist himself, John Martinoni, talking about his brand-new book, A Blue-Collar Answer to Protestantism. And uh, you unleashed one of those unanswerable questions about whether a dead body is a body. Uh, that's great, John. Uh, I love the question. Uh, I, I wasn't quite sure where you were going with that, but once you brought in James... <laughs> Is like, yeah, this is great. Um, uh, I mean, what more can you say? <laughs> yeah, and, and it's it's just it's so easy to understand. Yeah, and it's just right there in the Bible. You know, Protestants are always asking Catholics where in the Bible is. Well, here it is in the Bible. Shows that dead faith is really faith. So you can't say faith without works is dead. Well, yeah, and, and, well, dead faith really isn't faith, what the Protestants will say. But no, no, James says it is faith. It's just dead. No? So it doesn't do you any good, just like a dead body doesn't do you any good. You know, you need the spirit for the body to be animated with life. You need works for faith to be animated with life. So... Yeah, 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 absolutely. So, uh, okay, why don't, we, why don't we do another one? This is kind of fun. Uh, okay. Give us a, another unanswerable uh, question for Protestants. Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do two more real quick to get to a third one here. The, the next two questions, two and three, are both about salvation by, by faith alone, sola fide. And they're straight from the Bible. Question two, if a man has faith but has not works, can his faith save him? Again, that's from James chapter 2. And the answer from Scripture is no. His faith can't save him if he has faith but has not works. The Protestant who believes in sola fide has to answer yes. His faith can save him even if he doesn't have works. So they're directly contradicting Scripture. And if they say, 
Well, if a man has faith but has not works in his faith, save him. If they answer like Scripture answers and say no, well, then they don't believe in sola fide. So all of these answers, these 30 uh, – all of the – all of these questions, these 30 questions, mm-hmm. the Protestants will answer them, but if they answer one way, then they're contradicting Scripture. If they answer the other way, they're contradicting their own theology. That's why I say they're questions Protestants can't answer. I mean, they'll give you some sort of answer, but it's going to contradict either Scripture or their theology, and so that's why they really can't answer it. So question number three was, can someone through well-doing, in other words, good works, receive eternal life? And, you know, Protestants again, sola fide, no, through well-doing you don't receive eternal life. But in Romans, we'll leave James for a moment, and in Romans 2, verse 6-7, it says, For God will render every man according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. Uh, it doesn't get any plainer than that. <laughs> right. you know? uh, and, and, but if you believe in sola fide, you have to say, well, God was just kidding here. You know, he, he, you know, no, Paul, Paul really didn't know what he was talking about here, because it's faith alone that saves us. Works have nothing to do with our salvation. Right there in James 2, 6, and 7, God will give eternal life to those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality. doesn't mention faith at all. Now, as Catholics, we know that faith is assumed here because you're not going to do these works seeking for glory and honor and immortality if you don't have faith. I mean, why would you seek for immortality if you don't believe in immortality? You know, so, so for the Catholic, it's faith and works are both important responses to God's free gift of his grace. But for the Protestant, this passage really messes them up. Then, then question number four, this is what I want to get to, because this switches to sola scriptura. The question's real easy. Who wrote the Gospel of Mark, and how do you know? Okay. You know I mean, you, you go in, Scripture, Gary, is your, your, that's where you go for all answers to questions about Christianity. So, you believe the Gospel of Mark is written by a guy named Mark, and it's the inspired and errant word of God. Well, who wrote the Gospel, and how do you know? And how do you know that the the author is inspired by the Holy Spirit to write the Gospel? Give me book, chapter, and verse from the Bible that says that. Guess what, Gary? They can't, because it's not in the Bible. Nor in the Bible does it say... Mark, the uh, disciple of both Paul and, and Peter, uh, wrote the Gospel of Mark, and he was inspired by the Holy Spirit to do so. That, that passage is not in Scripture. So what does that mean for the sola scriptura believer? It means that they're relying on some authority outside of the Bible in order to know that the Bible is the Bible that it is the inspired, inerrant Word of God. They have to trust some authority outside of the Bible, which is a logical contradiction to sola scriptura. The Bible's my only source for all things Christian. Oh, well, there's this source outside of the Bible that <laughs> has to give me the Bible in the first place. So it's a logical contradiction, and it's something that every Catholic, you don't, 
You don't need a Ph.D. in theology to just ask the question. And what you're going to do here is hopefully cause someone to stop and think. That, that's what all these questions are about, causing Protestants to stop and think about what they believe and why they believe it. it it's, it's, not, it's not a, oh, I'm going to mess with a Protestant's mind today. It's no, no. I'm going to ask a Protestant a question that they can't answer for the purpose of getting them to think about what they believe, why they believe it, and maybe then take a closer look at the Catholic faith and possibly move closer to coming into the church. Yeah. No, John, did you ever, I'm sure you have gotten this response. Uh, well, it says right there, the gospel according to Mark. So there it is in the Bible. <laughs> yeah. And I, I tell, I said, look, that, that's put in there by the publisher. Uh, you know, we don't have the original. I, I once had, I asked someone one time, because another very related question to, to who wrote Mark and how do you know, is where in the Bible is the list of books that are supposed to be in the Bible? Mm-hmm. You know, where, where in the Bible do you see the list of books that are supposed to be in the canon of Scripture? And I had one guy look at me, and he said, well, it's right there in the front. I was like, what? He said, yeah, you know, the, the table of contents. It t- I'm like, oh, my gosh. I was like, uh, no, that's not inspired Scripture. Uh, so, but, yeah, so I, I was debating a Church of Christ preacher once. And I asked him that the, the debate was on sola scriptura. I asked him that question. I said, if you can't answer this question from Scripture, because the proposition was all questions about the Christian faith can be answered from Scripture, from the Bible. He was affirmative. I was negative. So I asked him, who wrote the Gospel of Mark? How do you know they were inspired by the Holy Spirit? Give me book, chapter, and verse. He ignored my question. So I got up the second time. I said, I hope everyone here, I was in the Church of Christ, realizes he didn't answer my question, I win this debate. <laughs> so he gets up and he says, well, it doesn't matter who wrote, who wrote the gospel as long as we know it's inspired. <laughs> I, got, I said, well, two things. How do you know it's inspired if you don't know who wrote it? Because inspiration is through the author. I said, number two, you still haven't answered the question, how do you know it's inspired, period? Where does right. it say that in the Bible? And so I said, I win the debate. Well, we debated the exact same thing six months later in a different city, different Church of Christ. I asked him the same question. He came walking up for his second round because he went first, um, and he had a big smile on his face, Gary. He was like, and I could read his mind. He's like, I got you, John. I got this. You're not getting me this time. I got it. And he gets up there and says, we, we know the author of the Gospels, Mark, was, was Mark, the disciple of Peter and Paul, and we know he was inspired by the Holy Spirit because of the witness of the early Christians. Uh-huh. <laughs> and I, I got a, I said, well, number one, that's not book, chapter, and verse from the Bible. So I right. win the debate. I said, number two, I, I told the guy's name was Pat. I said, Pat, do you know what we Catholics call the witness of the early Christians? Tradition. <laughs> you know? and, and after the debate, this huge, huge human being walks up to me. I mean, he was like he, six, eight, 300 pounds plus, easy. And he says, son, I looked up, I said, yes, sir. 
He says, I'm a deacon at this here church. I said, yes, sir. He says, uh, our boy didn't answer your questions, did he? <laughs> I said, no, sir. And he said, you've given me a lot to think about. I said, well, that's, that's what a debate's for. I appreciate you telling me that. So, but yeah, I mean, it's just, they can't answer the question. But the problem is, most Protestants have never thought about looking at what they believe and why they believe it from these perspectives. They've never thought about where did the Bible come from? Where in the Bible does it say Mark was inspired by the Holy Spirit, or that the writer of Hebrews was inspired by the Holy Spirit, or that any of the writers were inspired by the Holy Where does it say that in the Bible, if you're going by the Bible alone? And they can't answer those questions. Yeah, yeah, that's that's a great example, too, because... You know, if you have your nose in the Bible, you, you miss the big questions, like how in the world did the Bible come together? You know, how was the particular books uh, decided on? Why are other books excluded? You know, the big mega questions are usually things that people just don't think of because they're thinking only in terms of chapter and verse. Right, right. So that's what uh, a lot of this book is looking at underlying assumptions that Protestants generally never consider, never think about, never have put before their eyes uh, for them to to ponder on. So that's mm-hmm. that's why I wrote the book. It's like, and, and all these questions I tell people, everything in this book has come out of my personal experiences, my personal exchanges with Protestants. I said these thirty questions I put in here, and I could have put a whole lot more are questions I've asked in my dialogue, conversation with Ross, and they've never been able to answer. Yeah, very good. We're chatting with John Martinoni, brand new book, A Blue Collar Answer to Protestantism. More to come right after this. Stay tuned, everyone. Now, back to Hands-On Apologetics with Gary Machuda. Here's Gary. And welcome back, everybody. We're Jan chatting with the blue-collar apologist himself, John Martinoni, talking about his brand-new book, A Blue-Collar Answer to Protestantism. It's put out by Sophia Institute Press. And we're doing the sampler platter here. We're taking little samples from his book. Uh, in the book, he has, in addition, a lot of other material, 30 questions that Protestants can't answer. We've already done a few. We talked about Sol Scriptura, John, Sola Fide, why don't we uh, try an unanswerable question on uh, some other topic? All right. We've got uh, question number six. And I want to tell people, the chapters in this part of the book, the the second half, questions Protestants can't answer, are two to four pages long. So mm-hmm. you can read a chapter in easily in under five minutes. Okay, And then in the in the first half of the book, most of the chapters are, are four to six pages long. There's one or two that are longer, but uh, it's a very easy read for people. So another, we did Sola Scriptura, Sola Fide. What about once saved, always saved? Are there questions you can ask Protestants about once saved, always saved? Yes, there are. And I, I'm going to ask you this question, Gary. Okay. You know, you, I'm sure you're familiar with the story of the prodigal son from Luke 15. So, my question for Protestants is, and you're, you're my designated Protestant at the moment, you're my stand-in for Protestants, was the prodigal son saved before he left his father's house? 
you were a sola fide, once saved, always saved Protestant. What would you say? Yeah, yeah once saved, always saved, right? Because yeah, he was I mean, in his father's you, house, so he must be a yeah, Christian. Yeah, and, and the father in this story, pretty much all Christians, everyone that I've ever known, read, talked to, uh, see that the father in this story is representative of God the Father. So if you're in your father's house, if you're in God the Father's house, well, you can't get there by not believing, by being an unbeliever, by being unsaved, you're not in the father's house. So, so the prodigal son was saved when he was in his father's house at the beginning of the parable. But then he asked for his inheritance, which is basically like telling his father, you are dead to me. And he takes his inheritance, and he goes, and he spends it on sinful living. And he ends up in, in, you know, in the mire and mud with the pigs. And he, he, he comes to his senses. He repents and returns to the Father. Now, here's the key verse. is Luke 15, 24. The Father sees the Son coming from a, from a bit of a distance, and he says, you know, bring the fatted calf and kill it. Let us eat and make merry. Then in verse 24, for this my son was dead and is alive again. And, and so the question is, is you know, in, in salvation terms, what is being dead? It means you're unsaved. You're lost. In salvation terms, being alive is, hey, I'm saved. I'm in the Father's house. So the son was alive dead, then alive again. So in salvation terms, he was saved, unsaved, saved again. And I just, there was a guy on uh, YouTube. He's, he's apparently started in the last few months posting stuff. It's uh, uh, the dreaded free gracer, I think is his handle. And he, he had a video on once saved, always saved. And I don't know why, but for some reason it popped up uh, somewhere on my screen, and I noticed it, and I clicked on it. I made a comment, and I asked him that question. Was the son saved, the prodigal son saved before he left his father's house? And he said, yes, absolutely. This parable shows once saved, always saved, because the son was alive in his father's house. He went and sinned, but even though he sinned, he was still alive at the end. And I said, wait a minute, <laughs> you forgot that part about where it said he was dead. <laughs> I said, and he's alive again. And so I said, by your own words, you have shown that once saved, always saved is not scriptural, because the son was alive, then he was dead, then he was alive again. He was saved, unsaved, saved again. So what did he, how did he respond? Well, he deleted the conversation. So now I think to, it, to yeah. his, I, I I put it back up there, and he he said, "Well, YouTube must have done that." Like, okay. why would YouTube delete that particular? I mean, because there's a whole bunch of comments on there. Why would YouTube delete that comment? <clears throat> so so I reposted it, but and as of earlier this morning, it was still there after after a day. Okay. So we'll see. But, but he has no answer for it. He hasn't even tried to respond to it because he can't. Right, right. Yeah, yeah, good stuff. Um, the prodigal son just absolutely blows once saved, always saved out of the water. Right, right. Yeah. And, uh, 
Yeah, and see, I I use that, but I always said, you know, if the father died, did he have a right to claim his inheritance again? And, you know, obviously he oh, couldn't okay. because he already received the inheritance. It went out, right? right. But I like your version better. I mean, <laughs> I think it's still, there's some wiggle room with my version, but, you know, uh, when you focus on the uh, was alive, dead, and live again, uh, boy, yeah, I don't know how you could wiggle out of that. Apparently you can't. No one ever has. Yeah, I mean, I've <laughs> asked many, many times. Again, these questions are based on my personal experience. Talking, I've talked to thousands of Protestants in the last 25 years since I've been doing this, and, and I haven't asked that particular question thousands of times, but I've asked it a lot, and nowhere has anyone ever answered it with a rational scripturally and logically consistent response you know yeah. it basically right. the the other end just goes quiet yep it's field tested i love it yeah so okay well we did one save always save soul scriptura soul fide again folks you know this is just a couple of samples from a larger menu so to speak that you can get with pick up the blue collar answer to protestantism let's try some uh, let's try a different subject how about um, a proper interpretation of Scripture? Do you have any uh, well, yeah. questions? Yeah, I've that? got a question here. It says, uh, question number seven, the next question. Are you an infallible interpreter of Scripture? <clears throat> ah. That's my qu- I ask that question of every Protestant I deal with. Once we get into a conversation, I say, wait a minute. Are you an infallible interpreta- interpreter of Scripture? Because, uh, as I'm sure you've experienced many times over, when talking to Protestants, they say they go by the Bible alone, sola scriptura. But what they do is they'll read a, a verse from Scripture, and they'll look at you and say what that means is, it's like, <laughs> wait, 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 wait a minute. What do you mean, what that means is? You're giving me your interpretation of Scripture. You're not giving me Scripture. You're not giving me God's Word. You're giving me, you know, the Word of, of uh, Jim or the word of Sharon, or, or the word of Pat. It's not the word of God, because you read the word of God, but then you gave me the word of Jim to explain to me what the word of God means. So I ask, are you an infallible interpreter of Scripture? Well, every Protestant has this, you know, it's like this knee-jerk reaction when you mention the word infallible. You know, their, their, their face twitches, and their eye just kind of like shuts, right. and it's like, uh, uh, you know. Uh, infallible. No, nobody is infallible. No, I've been told, I don't know how many times, no man is infallible. And I'll look at him and say, so that includes you too, right? And I'll go, well, uh, well, because they know immediately what I'm getting at, so they don't want to admit it, but he, he, I've gotten some to say, well, yeah, I'm, I'm not infallible, but I'm guided by the Holy Spirit. Oh, wait a minute, so you are infallible. Well, no, well, the Holy Spirit's not infallible? Well, yeah, the Holy Spirit's infallible, but you said he guides you. Well, yeah, but not all the time, apparently. <laughs> it was like, <laughs> this is like, it's one big logical mess. And so when I say, are you an infallible interpreter of Scripture? People, I mean, 100% of the time, the answer, if it's answered, is no, but... I've had now two, maybe three times where somebody has said, 
well, I'm infallible interpreting that verse. <laughs> really? <laughs> you know, wow. So you're, you're infallible ver- interpreting John 15, uh, 12, but not John 15, 13, you know, or, or John, John 12, 17. Uh, it's mm-hmm. ridiculous, the answers you get. And that's why, again, these are questions Protestants can't answer. Um, you know, because basically under Protestant theology, what's going on is that, as I said, they don't believe in sola scriptura. They believe in sola, my private, fallible interpretation of scriptura. Yeah. And it's a huge difference, and Catholics need to recognize that. And I've, I've told Protestants I've dealt with, I said, under your theology, the best we can do here in our conversation is your fallible interpretation of Scripture versus my fallible interpretation of Scripture, right? They've never thought of that, mm-hmm. of looking at it like that. But it, that's every conversation a Catholic has with every Protestant under Protestant theology it's the Protestants' fallible interpretation of the Bible versus the Catholics' fallible interpretation of the Bible. Under Catholic theology, it's the infallible teaching of the Church founded by Jesus Christ and guided by the Holy Spirit versus the Protestants' fallible interpretation of Scripture. So that's what we're up against. Yeah, yeah, that's great. And it's such a great question to get the ball rolling and you know, uh, bring in all sorts of other ideas about the Holy Spirit's role and how you know it's true and all sorts of stuff. Uh, John, believe it or not, man, we're at the end of the program already. And uh, so... Time flies when you're having fun, Gary. I tell you, uh, that's certainly true. So uh, where can people get a hold of the copy of the book? And also, what have you been doing lately at the Bible Christian Society? I just I've been giving talks all over the place, doing some stuff within the diocese a lot, and finished this book. And I just actually proposed another idea for a book to EWTN, see if they'd be wanting to publish it. It's a a, a blue collar apologetics Bible study. Um, oh, nice. See, see if they would want to do that. I'm waiting on an answer. Uh, and but where they can get the book is EWTNRC for religious catalog. EWTNRC.com. EWTNRC.com. Just type in blue collar in the search engine and, and the book will pop right up. Awesome. Well, John, thank you so much for coming on the show. We appreciate it. Loved it, Gary, as always. Looking forward to the next time. All right. John Martinoni, folks. Yeah. Uh, pick up a copy. Like I said, it's all field tested, it's all gold, and uh, it definitely deserves a place on your apologetic book shelf. And, you know, like John said, time flies when you're having fun. And uh, it's been fun, folks, but it's already time for us to sit down and do it. And then turn off the dojo lights. But never fear, Terry and Jesse will soon be here with the Terry and Jesse show. Thank you so much. We'll be back again tomorrow.